right now I am planning out a, a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed that uh, we will uh, begin after we end uh, in the Gospel of John, which will be uh, right after Easter. And uh, in, in the Apostles' Creed that uh, many of you uh, have memorized, uh, there, there is a phrase about Jesus that he was crucified, dead, and buried. Why is that even said? Is that not assumed? Why in a, a creed that has come down through the centuries to, to say the essentials of what Christians believe with every single word in there carefully chosen, why does it talk about him being buried? Why does it even mention it? Well, actually, I'll give you a preview. It is uh, a, a, a matrix. It's a turning point between uh, the humiliation of Jesus coming to earth throughout his life, going to the cross, and preparation for his exaltation. It is not something to be skipped over it, too, is an essential doctrine in order for us to understand more about it from this passage. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John 19, beginning with verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had been yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we do ask that you would open up your word to us. Give us clarity. Illumine our hearts, our minds, so that we can understand why you preserve this text, why, why you wanted us to, to look at this and study it today. 
We're asking you for this blessing, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. After these things, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Now, we have mentioned this uh, uh, briefly about that being one of, the, one of the few concessions that occasionally were given uh, and particularly given to the Jews of that day. Typically, when there was a, a crucifixion, especially when it was for insurrection, they would leave the bodies on the cross for days and days. You can only, I, I can't even imagine, but you can only imagine how awful of a sight that would be. Of course, the idea was a deterrent. Look, this will happen to you as well if you choose this crime. And yet, in this time of Passover, in this time of, of the Sabbath, there was this concession when asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So it says they came and took away his body. But it tells who did. Joseph of Arimathea. Who is Joseph of Arimathea? Well, he's not even mentioned in any of the Gospels, and yet this account is mentioned in all four Gospels. That's why I say we've got to understand the, the importance of, of what's going on here. Not that it'd be less important if it's only in one of the Gospels, but when you, you see it deliberately spoken of from each of the points of view, you need to perk up and see what's going on here. All indications in, in the Gospels are that Joseph was a believer. Here it says that uh, he'd been secret about it, at least up to this point, because he feared the other Jews. So here is Joseph, who evidently uh, was one of the Jewish elite, but was staying undercover, so to speak, was being secret about it all during Jesus' ministry, and now he is going about as public as, as one can go. Now, we're going to come back to that but first, why would this be in all four Gospels? Well, I think there's at least one simple explanation for that. Of course, the importance itself. But Matthew actually talks about Joseph being a rich man in terms of his description of him. 
Now, go back to the Old Testament. Go back to prophecies about what, what was going to take place with uh, the, the Savior, with the Messiah that was going to come. And we read in Isaiah 53 that we often read around uh, as the elements are, are being passed. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is a, a fulfillment of the word of God. This is showing us, uh, like we have seen so often in John, we saw just a few verses earlier in verse 36, says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. The emphasis is absolutely that what's taking place here, what you're seeing here, is exactly according to plan. It's according to the plan that, that God revealed way back in the Old Testament. Things are not spinning out of control. This is the plan to bring about salvation for God's people. So we have Joseph, a secret disciple, going public. And then we see another one in the same category. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So... If you've been here for the entire series, when we were back in John chapter 3, we saw this account where Nicodemus, one of the, the Jews, one of the Jewish leaders, comes under the cover of night because, probably because of his fear of the other Jews, because of not knowing what was going on, I'm going to check this out, and so he, he comes, he speaks to Jesus. He's, he's the, the first one really in Jesus' ministry where it's recorded where he talks about how you must be born again, you must be regenerated, you've got to get a new heart from God. And then he's the first one to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's the first one to hear that, to hear it at night. But then we don't see any follow-up with Nicodemus. We don't see him responding to Jesus. We don't know what happened until here. And it says in verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now, this is essential, and this is another part of the, the importance of understanding the burial and that, that whole process uh, in, in this way. We're coming upon Easter. Uh, you will begin to see uh, on the, the History Channel, maybe the Discovery Channel, you'll begin to see all the explanations of the theologians uh, in, in terms of talking about uh, what really happened when Jesus died. The resurrection and explaining that away. Now, what, what are the explanations? Well, one of the explanations was that uh, he, he wasn't dead at all. He never, he never did die. That he was uh, on the cross, he swooned because of the trauma and so on, and then they, they took him down. Uh, they didn't kill him on the cross. They didn't break his legs. They thought he was dead. They took him down. They put him in the, the cool tomb, and uh, in the tomb, he was revived and, and so on. And that, that was a, a, a very, uh, among those who were choosing not to believe the word of God, that was a theory called the swoon theory. Although that, that practically takes more faith than to believe in a resurrection, really, uh, for, for many reasons, which uh, we won't go into today. But, it, but here's, here's what we need to see in terms of Jesus. How do we know he died on the cross? Well, we know because those who were experts at death and at execution, those who were ordered to crucify and to kill, who did it often, they determined he was already dead when they got to him. But not only that, they went ahead and thrust a spear in his side. And there was no response because he was already dead. And then they took him down and, and here, uh, if there was any life in him, what would Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, what would they have done? They would have taken him anywhere, somewhere else, tried to nurse him, him back to life. But instead, they, they knew he was dead. It's likely at their ages, they would have prepared others for their permanent burial, and they were preparing him just to get through the Sabbath and then would later be fully prepared permanently. Jesus was really dead. And then we read in verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, why do they mention that it's a, a new tomb where no one had been laid? Well, the tombs in, in that day often would be uh, cut out of, of rocks, like caves, or sometimes they were actually caves that were then formed into tombs. Uh, 
but it wasn't uncommon for uh, there to be several places inside of a tomb for bodies to be laid. That's one of the reasons why, why uh, this is important, that there was no confusion. There wasn't confusion as to whether, whether uh, another body was in there, whether Jesus was really laid in there or not when they came back. This was a tomb that had not been used up to that point. Jesus was the only one in there. So let's look at some applications. First of all, I think we need to ask the question, what, what, what changed for Joseph and Nicodemus? This was a, a, a strange time for them to go public. After all, they could remain undercover and maybe never get asked other questions about Jesus. His other disciples were, were going every other direction, and yet at this point, they go public. Joseph had been afraid of the Jews. He was a secret believer, it says. And over in Mark, Mark 15, it says he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What gave him the courage at this point? What about Nicodemus? We didn't see any response recorded, at least, when he was with Jesus before. What? What happened? They went public when everyone else was going underground. What changed? The cross. What happened on the cross? There is no other logic for going public at that time. They wouldn't have had to deny or remain undercover. Jesus was dead. But the cross, I am convinced, changed everything for them. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says, is it not a remarkable thing that all the life of Christ did not draw out and open a, a, a vowel from Joseph? Our Lord's miracles, his marvelous discourses, his poverty and self-renunciation, his glorious life of holiness and benevolence, all may have helped to build Joseph in his secret faith, but it did not suffice to develop in him a bold avowal of faith. The shameful death of the cross had greater power over Joseph than all the beauty of Christ's life. I think virtually the same thing could be said for Nicodemus. When they saw what took place on the cross, and so here's the question. What's it done for you? What's it done for us? Have, 
have we gotten so used to thinking about what took place on that cross that we are no longer stunned by it, by the love that it took, by the grace that was poured out to where we can maybe even remain undercover because we're so used to it. And that brings us to the question of present-day undercover Christians. I put undercover again in, in single quotes because it is, it's such an oxymoron, undercover Christians. To be a real believer is to have professed our faith in Christ, to have professed our faith in Christ before others. Now, you might immediately say, well, what about the underground church? What about other countries where there's severe persecution, where they're in danger if they profess Christ? Aren't they real Christians? Well, there is a time where we may not be able to be that forthcoming. But our question is for us. In our country, tomorrow, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, is there a place to be undercover? What's the worst that will happen? Typically in our country, the worst that will happen is ridicule. Nobody wants to be ridiculed. But in the face of what Jesus did on the cross, how small it is to talk about sacrifices that we must make. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. How willing are you to bet against what Jesus said here? Is it worth it? to stay undercover, under that protection. Like Joseph, like Nicodemus, consider Jesus on the cross and then decide if you will remain undercover. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count, but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That's what the cross should do for us. And then we, we read about this garden tomb um, I want us to do some biblical theology here, just for a minute. I told you that when we went to Israel, we visited uh, uh, 
the garden tomb and we had communion there and it's a beautiful place. It, it really is probably was my favorite setting of, of many wonderful places that we were able to see. And there was an empty tomb there that was like the kind in Jesus' day. So let's think about Jesus being laid in the grave. Before Jesus went to the grave, the grave was part of the curse. And then Jesus went there before his people. Now, for, for the unbeliever, the grave is a fearsome place, and it should be. If you're here today and without Christ, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you will keep coming. As you inquire, as you ask questions, But if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ alone for your eternal life, the grave should strike fear in your heart. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting in him alone for eternal life, it should be different. Now, I don't know anybody really that's looking forward to the process of death. That's okay if you're not looking forward to that. But by the time you get to the grave, by the time your body gets to the grave, if you're in Christ, you're already going to be with Christ. Isn't that a good thing? And that should take the fear of the grave away. John Flavel, a Puritan, wrote this. The grave received but could not destroy Jesus Christ. Death swallowed him as the whale did Jonah, his type, but could not digest him when it had swallowed him, but quickly delivered him up again. Isn't that a great picture? The grave that up until that point it had victory every single time would never have victory over any more of those that belong to Jesus. Ever. And so, the fact that he went there first makes all the difference for us. Now, John here mentions uh, a garden twice. When you see details like that, I hope by now in, in, uh, in the our study of the Gospel of John, I hope, hope you at least ask questions about that. Why is that detail there? What difference does it make? Why, why does it, it say that? And then you think of a garden and think, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. Where else have we seen a garden well, go back to the first garden. Why did Jesus need to come to die on the cross to save us from our sin? Because of what happened in the first garden, the Garden of Eden. 
That's when sin came into the world. That's when the promise was made that a Savior would come. Genesis 3, 15. That Satan would be defeated. So Adam, representing all of us, sinned. And from that time on, sin and death have been in the world. That's that garden. Fast forward to another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus reaffirmed that he was taking the assignment that he and the Father had agreed on in the councils of eternity. And then this garden. Jesus had died on the cross and was laid in a grave in this garden. One commentator put it this way. When, when man sinned in the garden, he dug a grave where either he or Jesus must die under God's judgment. And so it is for every sinner even today. Therefore, Christ concluded his earthly ministry by entering a garden and taking residence in the grave. His death provided the remedy for our sin if we trust in him alone for eternal life. But there's another garden. Let me tell you about that garden. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And you know how good it sounds when we hear about the Garden of Eden? This one will be millions of times better than that. And in the Garden, the new earth that is coming, there will not be tombs because there will be no more death or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And that's what we celebrate at this table because of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you went to the grave before us. And Lord, if, if that is a fear in, in any of our minds, any of us who are trusting in you alone for eternal life, will you remove that fear? Because by the time we get to the grave... We will be safe in the arms of Jesus. Thank you for that. And now, Lord, as we celebrate what you did on the cross, how you finished your work, will you grow us? Grow our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.